the most memorable Memorial Day that I've ever known beyond a doubt was Memorial Day back in 1991. I remember that day for several reasons. First of all, I was in seminary and it was a day off. So I was very thankful for Memorial Day 1991. I was gonna relax, you know, maybe some flip some burgers on the grill, whatever. It was gonna be a wonderful Memorial Day. Um, but unlike today, it was a Memorial Day that I will never forget because we were in the middle of a heat wave. It was 95 plus, plus a lot of humidity. It was hot, it was humid, it was miserable, it was awful. But the most memorable part of that day was the day that God blessed us with our firstborn child, Rebecca. So that was back in 1991 on May 27th. Uh, really hot and humid. Perhaps why she likes Thailand being super hot and humid. I don't know. Um, she was brought into it. And it was, a, it was a day that Cindy and I became moms and dads. And uh, it, was, it was the most memorial day. A day that we pray that we would never forget. As we begin in God's word this morning, we will see that God wants us to remember things. He wants us to not forget who he is and what he has done. He wants us to remember examples in the scriptures. And so we're going to be looking at a book of the Bible that we don't often look at. Matter of fact, I don't know that we've had, ever had a morning uh, message from. It's the book of Jude. And it's said Jude chapter 1, but it's really not Jude chapter 1 because there's only one chapter. So Jude... Chapter 1, whatever, verse 5 through 7 is found on page 1,223 in the church Bibles, 1223. And I would ask you to please follow along as I read from the book of Jude, verses 5 through 7. This is God's holy, infallible, and life-giving word. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in their same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we do come before you and we are so thankful that you have not left us alone. You have given us your word. And Lord, you have given us your spirit. And we pray, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, that your spirit would give us clear understanding, that you would help us, Lord, to go away more obedient and trusting you being made further into the image of Jesus, God the Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we all need to remember Things. We need to be reminded of remembering things. My dear wife will often say to me, oh, please remind me to call my mother. And like a good husband, I'll say right after that, be sure to call your mom. And that's not what she meant. She meant remind me later on. Make sure I don't forget is what she said. So I, being the sarcastic husband that I am, will often just say, 
right away. But no, we all night we all need reminding because we often forget. We often forget things. Sometimes we forget important things. Hopefully, you don't forget your wife's birthday or your anniversary. You know, this is why I told my son, you know, make sure you. I, I was saying, you know, make sure you find a, a lady and don't forget her birthday. Maybe her birthday can be the same day as your anniversary. You know, get it all done once. You know, that'd be a great thing. You just don't forget. You don't want to forget things. God wants us to remember important things. Our passage today, this morning, reminds us that Jesus is the one who rescues and saves. It is Jesus who rescues and saves. And our passage reminds us that he saved people not only today, but from the Old Testament as well. And sometimes we can forget these things. Sometimes we can forget it's Jesus alone who is the one who saves. So we're going to look at God's word. The the New American Standard Bible, which is our church Bible that we have, uh, says in verse 5 that the Lord saves. And this is true. Jesus is Lord. But if you were to look at uh, another modern day translation, the English Standard Version Bible translates this as Jesus saves because it is believed to use the best manuscripts and that, that the name Jesus is there and not just the word Lord. And you think, well, why is that important? It's important to understand that it is Jesus who just didn't just show up uh, in Bethlehem in the New Testament. Jesus has been around forever, right? So Jesus is God the Son who was there in Egypt saving his people from Pharaoh and his army. Another passage in God's word, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he says that Israel was drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Jesus. So it's important to understand that we have this picture of Jesus being around since the beginning, and we have this pre-incarnate Christ coming up through the scriptures before he comes as a person that we know today. But we see, if you look back in our beginning of Jude, we can see that Jude is the one who is writing this epistle under this, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So this is not just Jude's words. This is God's word through the Holy Spirit. He's having Jude write this. And we see that he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. I pray that when you think about yourself and how you identify yourself, if you are trusting in Christ, that you can identify yourself as a servant of Jesus Christ. But he also says that he is a brother of James. There are several James in the Bible, but this is the same James who wrote the book of James and is the half-brother of Jesus. So we can therefore deduce that Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. Not sure why he didn't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, right? But he he didn't. And he says early on in the ministry of Jesus, we can see in the gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that they thought that Jesus was out of his mind. You know, what are you doing, Jesus? You know, you're wandering around homeless. You have a home. Come, right? They thought that he was crazy. In the gospel of John chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us that even his own brothers did not believe in Jesus. And that would have included James and Jude, who is our writer today, were among the brothers who did not believe in Jesus at first. It was much later that James and Jude both had been given faith to believe and to trust in Jesus. So Jude is writing to us as one 
who was also saved, who was also rescued by Jesus. Jude was rescued by Jesus from his own sin, from his own unbelief, and was given faith to believe in him. And now he is writing this epistle, and he's reminding us that this Jesus that saved him from his own bondage of sin and death is the same Jesus who saved his people, the Israelites, out of bondage in Egypt. Judas saying that the Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a cross at Calvary and rose from the dead, is that same Jesus who rescued his people from Egypt. He is identifying Jesus, God the Son, as Lord, as Yahweh. So if you look in your Old Testament scriptures, you'll often find the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's, that's the word for God's name, Yahweh. And it is this, in our translation, in our, our Bibles today, but this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus that we're talking about. So G, just as Jude and the Israelites needed to be rescued from a bondage to sin and death, so do we. So do we. We need the same Lord, the same Jesus. Psalm 51, King David reminds us that we are all sinful from birth, even sinful from the time our mothers conceived us. So little Clementine Ada, she was, she was sinful from the time she was in the womb, and, and she's sinful now. We're going to see her sinfulness more and more, and it doesn't take long, right? We've all seen it. If you've, if you've raised children, if you've seen children around you, it doesn't take long to see the effects of their sin. We are all born with that sinful nature, needing to be saved, needing to be rescued from our bondage of sin and death. We are born as enemies of God, needing to be rescued. We, we have no ability to save ourselves. None. Well, don't I just invite Jesus? Isn't that me doing the work? No. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is giving you a desire to put your trust in him. So it's God. All of our salvation is God's doing. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, for this is not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is God the Spirit that gives us faith to believe so that we might trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And Jude is reminding his readers and us that we get no credit for our salvation. We get no credit for our part about our salvation. As the Apostle Paul states in Ephesians chapter 1, that God is the one who chooses us in him before the creation of the world. It says that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. It is only by God's saving grace that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, having all of our sins forgiven. It is God alone who saves us and removes our sin-stained clothes and wraps us in the righteous garments of Christ. But not only do we need reminding that Jesus alone is the one who saves and rescues, we also need reminding that not only does he rescue and save, it is Jesus who destroys those who rebel. It is Jesus who destroys those who rebel and do not believe. Now some questions that might come to mind when we look at this part of our text, like what does Jude mean by destroy? And who is he referring to? Well, the meaning of destroy, first of all, is, 
here is to completely perish. It implies a, a permanent destruction, yet it means also an eternal suffering. An eternal suffering. It's the same verb that is used in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Perhaps when reading this verse, you may have thought, like I did, in the context of Jesus saving people out of the land of Egypt, he was subsequently destroying those who did not believe. The obvious ones of those who did not believe would have been Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It was the result of the hardening of the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Several times throughout the book of Exodus, it tells us that, that God was the one who was actually hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And yet there are other times it says that Pharaoh was the one that was hardening his heart as well. And what we know from this is that Pharaoh and the Egyptians had sinful hearts who refused to believe in the one true God, and thus they were destroyed for their unbelief. They would have eternal suffering. After the ten plagues that God called down on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally let uh, Moses and the Israelites go. But soon after that, they left, and Pharaoh had regretted letting the Israelites leave. And so Pharaoh gathered up his army and he tried to chase them down. And they were trying to chase them down as the Israelites were going through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when the Israelites had reached safely on the other side of the Red Sea, God let the walls of the sea come down and utterly destroyed Pharaoh and his army. It says in Exodus 14, verse 28, that none of them survived. But the Egyptians are not the only ones whom Jesus is said to have destroyed. It says in our passage that he destroyed others who did not believe. Those who did not believe would have been Israelites as well. Israelites who rebelled and refused to trust in God when he told them to go in and take possession of the land, the promised land. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that they had rebelled against the command of the Lord that they grumbled and they complained against the Lord. They even said that the Lord hated them and believing that he brought them out of Egypt to deliver them into the hands of the Amorites to destroy them there. And when the Lord heard what they had said, he was angry and he solemnly swore. He said, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your forefathers except for Caleb and Joshua. Why? Because Caleb and Joshua had faith and trust to believe. They were the ones who believed. The rest, God declared, was an evil generation, and thus he destroyed them for their unbelief. Our passage shows us that we need to remember other examples as well. Jude points out these other examples. We need to remember other examples as well. Jude reminds us that we need to remember the examples of certain angels. Well, who are these angels that Jude is asking us to remember? In verse 6, he tells us that these angels are those who did not keep their own domain and abandoned their proper abode. Well, what angels is Jude talking about? The, the clearest explanation is that these angels are the ones who rebelled with Satan and were cast out of heaven by God. This is often referred to as the fall of Satan and these other angels. 
There are a few other passages in scripture that describe this fall. Um, one is Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And although these passages are describing earthly kings of Babylon and Tyre, they are also referring to Satan and his being uh, cast out of heaven. Ezekiel 28 specifically speaks out how God created Satan as an angel. It says in Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following, he said, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found within you. Though widespread trade, through widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. So I threw you to the earth. And then prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 14 verse 12 and following. God says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grace, to the depths of the pit. And even Jesus makes reference to the fall of Satan in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And since Satan is referred to as a star that was cast out of heaven and Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 says that a third of the stars were cast with him, many conclude that these stars are fallen rebellious angels who were also cast out of the presence of God. Satan and these fallen angels were all created to, by God to worship and serve him forever. Yet their domain was being in the presence of God, but Satan and his fallen angels rejected that domain. They rebelled and they rejected God and his purpose and plan for them. So God cast them away from his presence until the day of judgment. Our passage in verse 6 says, He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This is also what Peter writes in 2 Peter verse, uh, two, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be held for judgment. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, we can read about this great judgment day. When Jesus returns, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate a people one from the other. A shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then he said to those on his left, he said, depart from me. 
depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what we can see from this passage this morning is that God punishes unbelief and rebellion. And we need to be reminded of this. Verse 5 says that he destroys those who do not believe. He destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their unbelief. God destroyed many of the Israelites for their rebellion and unbelief as well. He destroyed the angels for their rebellion. And this destruction is not merely annihilationism. Annihilationism is this big word. It's a, it's a false doctrine being taught in liberal churches today. It is a false doctrine that teaches that God merely annihilates you from your existence for your rebellion and belief. Well, what type of punishment is that? If you just vanish, right? In other words, they say when you die, you just stop existing. The problem with this false doctrine of annihilationism is it is contrary to what God's word teaches us. God's word teaches us that those who do not believe will be destroyed eternally. It is an everlasting death. It's an everlasting punishment in a very real place called hell. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness. A lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of separation from the blessings of God, a prison, a place of torment where the worm does not die. And, and some, some people wonder if these descriptions are literal or are they just, are they merely symbolic? And it is said well, the function of these symbols is to point beyond themselves to a state of actuality than the symbol itself can, can attain. So the that Jesus, he used these most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell as no comfort to those who see them merely as symbols. Hell is not merely being separated from God. R.C. Sproul writes, to be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the impenitent person. No ungodly person wants nothing more. He doesn't care whether he's separated from God, right? Their problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be being in the presence of a just God that will torment them day and night forever. In hell, God will present, be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He will be there to exercise just punishment for those who rebel and do not believe. They will know God as an all-consuming fire. Hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a, a suffering torment from which there is no escape and no relief. And being reminded of this should cause us to repent of our sin and to believe in Jesus. As we understand the truth of this, we should be reminded that we need to be repenting of our sins and to believe and trust in Jesus alone and, and be praying for those others who do not yet know Jesus. Jude continues in verse 7 to remind his hearers of, a, of another example. He wants us to be reminded of these examples so that we do not forget. He reminds us about Sodom and Gomorrah. God wants us to be reminded of the example of Sodom and Gomorrah so much that he speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah in Deuteronomy, Amos, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Matthew, Luke, Romans, Peter, Revelation, and Jude. That's a lot of places in God's word. He reminds us about Sodom and Gomorrah because of its horrific nature, what was going on. We read about it first in Genesis chapter 13, where Abram and Lot, they separate. They were, they, they were growing so big, they were separated, and Abram gives Lot the opportunity to choose the land to, to settle in. And it says that Lot uh, chose the land that was beautiful. He, he, he went after the best of the lands. Yet, it was right near Sodom. So after Abram offered Lot and he chose this land where his family good, Lot selfishly chose for himself what he thought was the best land. Lot chose for himself the whole plain along the, near the Jordan because it was a well-watered, like the garden of the Lord, it says. And it says that Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. The next verse that we read in Genesis 13, verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. It is not until Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, that it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And that is when we see Abraham begin to plead on behalf of the righteous people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You read about that. And we find out there's evidently less than 10 righteous people there. And this is where we get the example that Jude is alluding to. It says in our passage that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were indulging in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Perhaps this is starting to sound an awful lot like parts of the United States and around the world. The story in this passage says it's a story of when two angels of God came and arrived at Sodom and Lot goes out to meet them and convinces them to stay at his home. And he knew that it wasn't safe for them to stay out in the gateway of the city. And it says in Genesis chapter 19 verse 4 that before they went to bed all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old surrounded the house and they called to Lot and they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Referring to the angels. Bring them out so that we may have intimacy with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He knew that it was awful. And then he says something. You're shocked. He says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Have them. Let me bring them out to you. You can do whatever you want with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. You would think his daughters would have too. It would appear as though Lot was being influenced by the culture around them. In one sense, he knew that homosexuality was wicked, but he was willing to give up his own daughters to protect these angels. We're glad to know that God did not allow this to happen. Praise God that it says that the angels struck the men with blindness so that they could not find the, the door of Lot's home. And what we see next is God's perfect mercy and justice. In God's mercy, we see that he spares the life of Lot and his family, although Lot's wife 
we know was not obedient. She turned back and looked back and became a pillar of salt. But because of the wickedness, rebellion, and unbelief of Sodom and Gomorrah, they became an example of God's wrath for us. It says that the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. I cannot imagine what that would be like. What happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for us and for those who are wicked, of those who rebel in unbelief. The punishment is that of eternal fire. The true story of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example that shows how much God abhors the wickedness of sin and rebellion and immorality of all kinds. Sadly, despite the, the fact that God gives us a very clear example of Sodom and Gomorrah in the scriptures, we see that uh, perverse immorality continues to invade our culture, our families, and even many liberal churches today. There's a strong homosexual agenda in Hollywood that has reached our public school systems and social work in our cities, and this is nothing new. Back in 1990, I started to go to uh, school to Temple University to get my master's in social work. And uh, the day we moved into the area, I found out that Temple University was going on strike. And I was, I was like, oh, great. Why, we moved up here from Virginia. Now what are we going to do? Um, found out that the administration said, well, they're going to continue to teach the classes. And, and when I got there, I could not believe the pro-homosexual agenda that was going on. They just, it just blew my mind. I knew that I knew it wasn't going into a Christian university, but I wasn't seeing this as something that I was going to be pushed into to support and encourage. And so when I told them that I believed that homosexuality was a sin, yet God called me to love the sinner and hate the sin, they could not, they could not understand that at all. And so uh, they told me I was not going to make it as a social worker in Philadelphia. And I said, okay. I went home, withdrew withdrew from school, you're not getting more of my money, prayed, and the Lord led me to go to Westminster Seminary where I became a pastor. We need Christian social workers, don't get me wrong. We need so social workers in Philadelphia. I know we just have one graduate, praise the Lord. So we're so thankful for, you, for your social workers who take a stand against what is wrong in this world. But sadly, the homosexual agenda has infiltrated uh, many liberal, godless churches as well. I recently looked up uh, a church's website to see what they believed, because it's important to do. If you're going to go visit a church, just like, oh, it's a church. Ah, we're going to go see Jesus. No, uh, check out what they believe. Here's what we read, what I read. It says, we are a diverse bunch with many different faith perceptions. Start out, okay, we're a diverse bunch. <laughs> we're a diverse bunch here but with a different faith perceptions. We, we call ourselves Protestant Christians, finding our heritage in the Church of England. And what can most sum up our beliefs is a balance between scripture, that sounds good, also tradition and reason. Each is central, but held in tension with the others. It's a perspective in which our understanding of God is, is ever evolving and changing. Wrong, all right. We hold scripture as deeply sacred, yet we know the context in which it was written, who had the power and authority and who didn't. Understanding scripture on the level that makes part of our story as we go in to read, the traditions of the church inform us of who we are. Reason gives us gifts to focus on where God is moving now. And they say, 
And they say this, by the way, they say, you've probably guessed that this makes us a little more progressive than other Christian traditions. Yeah, I guess so, not progressive, but liberal. Uh, we are a church of thinkers, questioners, believers, and more. Central to everything uh, is the understanding that, and this is where they are okay with, right? Central to everything is the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God who came to join us, died for our sins, and to rose to point a new hope of God's love for us. That was good. That was the only good part of it, right? But for this church, they said worship is key, especially the acts of sacraments, baptism, communion. Our worship is traditional. In many ways, we look like a Roman Catholic church. Our clergy, here's where it gets really bad again. Our clergy are called priests, but we can be men, women, or even non-heterosexual. I was like, okay, you're going way, way bad here. The truth is that coming together as a community is just central for what we do. We're just a, we're just a group of people. It's not about what we each believe and who's right. Coming together is about the God in me finding the God in you and worshiping with each other. This is horrible. Satan is loving this. He is trying to get a foothold in the church and we need to guard the church and protect the church. There are godless people who are infiltrating the church today. And I'm not saying this church. This has been a good church for many years now. But they are wanting to change the grace of God into a license for immorality and to deny Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved from our sin. As we look at these verses today, Jude wants us to be reminded of the fact that Jesus alone rescues and saves us from our sin even the sin of homosexuality and every other horrific sin out there. But he also reminds us that not only does Jesus rescue and save, Jesus is the one who destroys those who rebel and do not believe. And Jude is the one who gives us these examples to remember. He gives us the example of unbelief, of rebellion and immorality. And as we reflect and apply this passage to our lives, it's to cause us to repent of our own sin and to believe. It should cause us to repent of our sin and to believe and to trust in Christ alone. In Hebrews chapter 3, we, we see a warning against unbelief. It says in verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Do not be like the Israelites who heard the truth and rebelled and never entered the promised land. And so... Not only should it cause us to repent and believe, but it should also give us a sense of urgency in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. We need to remember that others, if they do not put their trust in Christ, are going to suffer for eternity in hell. And we should be on our knees and praying for our unbelieving uh, relatives and neighbors and co-workers, people who we are at school with. Jesus promises that, is that one day he will return. He will return as our Lord and Savior if you're trusting him or he is coming as your judge. Let us remember to pray for those who do not yet believe. Let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and ask God to give them faith to believe and to have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to gather, to worship you, to understand and look at your scriptures. Lord, we thank you for Jude and for your using him
to write your word to us, to be reminded of who you are, that you are the one who rescues and saves, that you rescue and save us from our sins of unbelief, our sins of immorality, our sins of rebellion. Help us, Lord, to repent of these sins, Lord God. Help us, Lord, to put our trust in you. Help us to be about a church who is eager to proclaim the gospel to this unbelieving community around us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.